welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, English Standard Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you today as we continue the new series we recently started on Anchored by Truth, which we are calling 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books, and he is the one picking the facts we are covering in the series. R.D., why did you entitle the series 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know? I'm sure many listeners would think that there are far more than just 10 that are pertinent to the Christian faith. There are surely thousands of facts that are important to a thorough understanding of Christianity. Picking 10 seems to be a bit counterintuitive. After all, here on Anchored by Truth, we've probably talked about hundreds or thousands of facts that help demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Well, before we get started in our content for today, I would like to thank everyone who is joining us here today. You know, it is very gratifying to know that all around the world there are millions, hundreds of millions of people or more for whom the Bible really is the cornerstone of their faith. The Bible is a remarkable book throughout history for over 2,000 years. In all cultures, in all places, in all times, the Bible has been able to reach out and touch the hearts of people, and it continues to do that today. And I fully recognize that in our day and time, there are a great many people who have come to question the authenticity of the Bible. And that's a little sad because the Bible demonstrates its authenticity on every page. But there are still, as I said, hundreds of millions or more people around the world whom the Bible has touched. And so we feel very grateful that we're just able to participate in a small way in being able to assert and affirm that, as you said, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And we're just very grateful for everyone who joins us in that effort, whether it's by communicating that fact, thinking about that fact, or just listening to that fact, as people do when they join us on Anchored by Truth on the broadcast or the podcast. I've been wanting to do this series, this 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. I've been wanting to do this series for a while. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because in today's world, as I briefly mentioned, the Bible is so frequently challenged by people who have adopted a position of radical secularism. But the Bible is a book that contains evidence that it is in fact what it claims to be, which is the inspired Word of God. And one of the ways it does that is through the facts that are present not only in the Bible, but also that we see in human history and in natural history. But not all facts are equal, and that's something I want to talk about today. One of the ways that we can be so confident about the truth of the Christian faith 
is that Christianity permits us to test it by examining its principal source, which is the Bible, through the lens of logic, reason, and evidence. And relevant facts are a major part of the evidence that can help us in our examination. But just as in other situations, for instance in a judicial court case, not all facts bear equal weight in helping settle the truth of a major claim that's at issue. Some facts are informative, and in conjunction with other facts, they will help frame how the jury might view the decision they have to make. But some facts aren't just informative, they are dispositive. One definition of the term dispositive that we found on yourdictionary.com says that dispositive means that, quote, that disposes or settles a dispute, question, etc. Conclusive. Decisive. Unquote. Dispositive can mean facts or evidence that are pertinent to the outcome of a legal case, but in the law it quite often refers to facts or evidence that, as the definition says, settles the matter. But I think you're going to need to give us an example to tell us what you're trying to get at. Well, let's say that I was accused of robbing a bank. But you're innocent, right? Yes, I'm innocent. But the police were given a description of someone who roughly matches my height and weight, and they said the bank robber was wearing an old brown coat and hat, and they heard from my neighbor that I have an old brown coat and hat. And when the police talk to me, they tell me that the bank was robbed on the 13th. But let's say I can prove that on the 13th, I was in Montana, giving a speech to a crowd of 500 people at the exact same time that the bank was being robbed. The fact that I was thousands of miles away at the time the bank was robbed would be dispositive in demonstrating that I was not the one who robbed the bank. Now, there might be other facts that would also be dispositive, but all I really need is one. You mean that there may be other facts that are equally strong in ruling you out as a possibility for the bank job. Maybe the robber was six feet eight inches tall, but you're a foot shorter. Maybe the robber had a physical deformity like a missing finger on one hand, but you still have, thankfully, all your fingers. Maybe a bank guard shot the robber and they know that your blood type doesn't match his. In other words, there might be many facts that rule you out as a suspect, but you're saying you really need only one to settle the matter. I suppose they could say you had an accomplice. They could, and that's a great illustration of another point that we need to talk about. All of us, every single one of us, views the world and any particular set of facts that we come across through a set of starting axioms. That's true for Christians, and it's also true for non-Christians. And therefore, when we present conclusions, we very rarely simply present a sort of a set of just bare facts. When we talk about conclusions, especially when it comes to competing truth claims, we have almost always applied some level of analysis to a set of facts. We have filtered those facts through our own set of starting axioms. And hopefully we have applied valid logical principles and we've drawn a conclusion either deductively or inductively. Deductive reasoning is reasoning from the general to the specific. Inductive reasoning goes in the opposite direction from the specific to the general. Inductive reasoning starts with specific observations or facts, looks for patterns, and then formulates a hypothesis or conclusion based on the determination of whether a pattern exists based on those specific observations. 
someone who notices that every time they eat dairy products, they have some unpleasant gastric experience, might come to the conclusion that they are lactose intolerant. They arrived at their conclusion inductively. Conversely, if a mother told her daughter that everyone in the family is lactose intolerant, the daughter might test the idea that she is lactose intolerant by exposing herself to specific dairy products and then see if she has the same problems. The daughter started with a general premise that she was likely lactose intolerant and then confirmed that premise with specific observations. The daughter reasoned deductively. Yes. The point is that arriving at reasonable hypotheses or conclusions requires not just facts, but also the application of valid logical processes. But we all begin that valid logical process with a set of starting axioms. So we need to be aware of those starting axioms, and we need to be sensitive to whether or not, as we evaluate the facts and apply logic, whether those starting axioms are remaining valid. What you're saying is that it's possible that as we gather evidence and apply logic, we may come to realize that our starting axioms are themselves in jeopardy. And unfortunately, we have examples of people who adhere to sorts of starting axioms long past the point where those axioms have remained valid. Exactly. And that is particularly prevalent in the debates that swirl around the Bible and critical portions of the truth that the Bible presents. And there is no more glaring example of where some people adhere to a set of starting axioms than when it comes to the history that is contained in the book of Genesis. Which is why we started out with the first two facts that we did when we started this 10 fact series. The first fact that we discussed that every Christian needs to know is that science confirms that the universe and the earth are thousands of years old, not millions or billions of years old. The second fact that we covered was that the complexity of life makes it impossible that life could have arisen as a result of the random collision of atoms and molecules, even if you could explain the existence of the atoms and the molecules to begin with. We started with those two facts because they get to the heart of whether the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, which are the opening chapters of the Bible, is, in fact, true. Yes. So let's take that first fact, that science provides solid evidence that the conventional idea that the universe is 14 billion years old is untenable. Science provides us evidence that the universe is not billions of years old. So when we did our episode on that fact, which was the first episode of this 10-fact series, we pointed out three lines of evidence that are a real problem for the conventional view on the age of the universe. And those three lines of evidence we offered were the presence of soft tissue and dinosaur remnants, the so-called faint young sun paradox, and lunar recession. And anyone who would like to get a more in-depth understanding of those lines of evidence can review the podcast version of that show, which is available from most podcast apps or our website, crystalseabooks.com. So in that first episode of this series, we cited three lines of evidence that the conventionally supposed age of the universe is wrong. But there are other lines of evidence, dozens, perhaps hundreds of them. For instance, Carbon-14 is a radioactive form of carbon, and it decays very quickly. And we can detect carbon-14 in diamonds. 
Well, the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. That means after 5,730 years, the amount of carbon-14 present in a given sample would decrease by half. And then after 11,460 years, only a quarter of the original amount would be left. And after a little over 17,000 years, only an eighth, and so on and so on. Well, if the entire Earth had started out all being carbon-14, which it most certainly did not, in less than a million years, there would not be enough carbon-14 left to be detectable. This does not mean that the Earth is millions of years old. It is simply a way of putting an extreme upper limit on the age of the Earth. Because we find trace amounts of carbon-14 in diamonds, it means that the Earth cannot be anywhere near a million years old. Right. Now, we know that carbon-14 can be produced by cosmic rays entering the upper levels of the Earth's atmosphere, but that certainly would not account for the presence of detectable carbon-14 in diamonds. Diamonds are the hardest substance on Earth, and they're essentially a closed system. So there is no way carbon-14 that was formed in the upper atmosphere today could penetrate a diamond so that it would be detectable within that diamond. But scientists have detected carbon-14 in diamonds. The point is that this is yet another line of evidence that the Earth cannot be anywhere near 4.5 billion years old. And remember, that's the age that conventional science claims it to be. In our last episode, you said, quote, Deep time is the root of the evolutionary weed, unquote. Deep time is the idea that the universe is 14 billion years old and the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Evolution needs deep time, because without it, the whole idea that the random collision of unintelligent atoms and molecules could have produced life, let alone atomic physicists or molecular biologists, is ridiculous. So what you are getting at is the fact that science confirms that the universe and Earth are thousands of years old, not millions or billions of years old, is dispositive in the destruction of the evolutionary hypothesis. Without deep time, evolution dies as a hypothesis even worthy of contemplation. Exactly. And that's why, in this episode of Anchored by Truth, I wanted to take a break from the presentation of the ten facts themselves and ensure that we are focusing listener attention on why these facts are so important to their faith. And I'm not doing this so much to provide an apologetic or evangelistic tool, although you could use them for that purpose, but the primary reason that we're doing this is to enable our listeners to be confident in their faith. You know, recently I had a conversation with a young believer, young to me anyway, he was much younger than me, And he told me that before his conversion, the one question that he kept asking himself was, how can you be sure which faith is the true one? Well, properly understood and presented, Christianity can answer that question clearly and comprehensively. And it's the only faith that can with an answer that covers all of the various disciplines by which we discern truth. Your point is that Christianity, by means of the Bible, answers all of the big questions. Where did the universe come from? How did life begin? Where did man come from? Why is there pain and trouble in the world? Why can people still be hopeful in the midst of a troubled world? Why do people feel a compulsion to distinguish between right and wrong in such a way that they frame moral and ethical systems and standards by which they live and want others to live? 
And why does mankind have a near universal apprehension of the divine? The sense that has pervaded every culture, regardless of location, time in history, or other traditions, that there is a supernatural realm that lies outside our physical senses. Yes, Christianity can give meaningful, intelligent, and reasonable answers to those questions. And the answers that Christianity gives are consistent with what we know about the physical order of the universe in which we live, consistent with physics, chemistry, biology, geology, etc. And those answers are also consistent with the revealed history of humanity, what we can learn from archaeology and sociology and anthropology and history. And Christianity also provides verifiable evidence of the existence of a supernatural power and realm by means of the fulfilled prophecy that is contained in the Bible. But to be able to give those answers intelligently, Christians have to have a basic awareness of how facts, evidence, and logic are applied when you sort through competing truth claims. But in the midst of all of that, Christians can turn to Deuteronomy 31a and hear God telling us, quote, I will never leave you or forsake you, close quote. And we can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus tells us that, quote, In this world we will have tribulation. But we can remain at peace because Jesus tells us he has overcome the world. Well, one of the biggest ways that Jesus has overcome the world is because he has truth on his side. Jesus is, in fact, the truth. Jesus made and sustains everything, so truth is is actually dependent on him, not him dependent on the truth. But that's a subject for a different day. We're getting a little away from our basic subject. For today, we need to focus on the fact that one of the reasons Christians can be very confident that their faith is the true faith is because the Bible gives abundant evidence of Christianity being true. The Bible simultaneously proclaims the truth but in its unmatched reliability, fidelity, and accuracy, it contains evidence of the truth of the claims. But to be able to use that truth, we must understand the relationship of facts to sorting among the competing truth claims. And one of the most interesting things I've heard you point out is that when we have dispositive facts at our disposal, we may have one or many, but all we really need is one. Can you explain that a bit more as it applies to our principal concern about the 10 facts every Christian needs? Sure. So let's get back to the fact that the general theory of evolution needs lots and lots of time to even be worthy of attention. That's why Charles Darwin's views didn't flourish until another Charles, Charles Lyell, popularized the idea of uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the idea that the present is the key to the past. Lyle is often called a Scottish geologist, but his training and education was actually as a lawyer. Before Lyle popularized the view of uniformitarianism, most scientists subscribed to some form of catastrophism. And that was the premise that most of the features that we see on the Earth's surface were the result of previous catastrophes, such as Noah's flood. But Lyle postulated that rather than a biblical flood carving features such as the Grand Canyon, that those kind of features were actually created by very gradual but slow forces that acted over eons, such as erosion. And Darwin was well aware of Lyle, wasn't he? 
Yes. Darwin had a copy of Lyell's book, which was entitled The Principles of Geology, in his infamous voyage on the British 10-gun brig that was named the Beagle. And that ship was under the command of a Captain Fitzroy. And Darwin and Fitzroy often had philosophical discussions. Part of that included the discussion of Lyell's book. So Lyell's idea that there were these eons of time available on the Earth allowed Darwin to posit that biological changes may have occurred in the same way Lyell posited that geological change had occurred, slowly and gradually. But Darwin, for instance, had no idea about the complexity of a living cell. In Darwin's day, they knew about the existence of cells, but the scientists of his day thought that cells were relatively simple blobs of protoplasm. Darwin wrote long before the explosion in knowledge of molecular biochemistry, which didn't occur until the middle of the 20th century, about a hundred years after Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. But today, we are well aware that far from being simple structures, living cells are, in fact, complex microsystems. The complexity of the simplest living cell dwarfs the complexity of any mechanical device invented by man. The irreducible and specified complexity of living cells and creatures is dispositive evidence that such a system could not have been produced by random and undirected activity. Yes. And we covered that in greater detail in our last episode of Anchored by Truth. But back to the point that we were talking about. The general theory of evolution needs billions of years to work. Well, we've now covered four lines of evidence, facts if you will, that demonstrate that the Earth is far more likely to be thousands of years old than billions. We've talked about lunar recession, the faint young sun paradox, the presence of soft tissue in dinosaur remains, and the decay rate of carbon-14. Any single one of those facts is dispositive evidence that evolution does not have billions of years to work with. Said differently, not all four of those facts have to be true to show that the Earth is only thousands of years old. Any one of those lines of evidence is sufficient to do the trick. And if Earth is thousands of years old, which we strongly believe the scientific evidence indicates, that destroys evolution as ever having any possibility to actually do the miracles that it's conjectured to do. I see what you're saying. All those lines of evidence demonstrate the same thing. But if one or two were somehow shown to be an error, that doesn't save the evolutionary time frame. All of them would have to be false to save the evolutionary time frame. And not just those four lines of evidence are available to show that the time needed for evolution to be conceivable isn't available. Creation Ministries International has a single article that contains 101 lines of evidence that show that the Earth is far more likely to be on the order of thousands of years old. But given that this is true, Why do most conventional scientists continue to support the idea that the Earth and the universe are billions of years old? That goes back to the compulsive power of a person's starting set of axioms. Most scientists look at the age of the universe or the Earth from the starting point that it is billions of years old. That's what their training and education have led them to believe. That's what they had to believe to get their degrees, their funding, and their approval from colleagues. So when it comes to evidence that doesn't agree with their starting axioms, 
They have to start trying to find suitable explanations for how those axioms can remain in place but account for the evidence that doesn't fit. So in the case of lunar recession, they might say that the moon has not always orbited the Earth, that at some distant time in the past it was captured as it was flying by the Earth. In the case of the faint young sun paradox, they say that the faint young sun could keep the Earth warm enough for life because the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was a thousand times greater than it is now. To account for the problem that the evidence disagrees with their axioms, they have to invent explanations. But if the moon was captured by the Earth or the level of carbon dioxide was much higher in the past, those ideas violate their presumption that all of the forces operating today have been operating in the same way in the past. In other words, to save deep time, they have to sacrifice the idea of uniformitarianism, right? Right. And that's the beautiful thing about the Bible and Christianity. The time frames that we learn about from the Bible don't require any of that. Now, this is not to say that the biblical time frames don't have some challenges that we have to address with respect to dating. There are some, and Christian scientists routinely work on solutions to those problems. But it all goes back to the basic point. There are facts, a great many of them, that can help that young Christian get an answer to his basic question of how can I know which religion is true. And that includes the most widespread religion of our day that might be termed secularism. If belief in God is a religious viewpoint, then not believing God is also a religious viewpoint. It's the opposite position of the same question. In our culture, we like to label belief in God as being religious, but we don't put that same label on not believing in God. And that has led to a lot of mischief, hasn't it? Yes. You know, in our culture, we have said that we must separate, quote, church and state. But we now interpret that phrase to mean we have to expunge religion, especially Christianity, from our public institutions and our public square. But when we do that, we have not become religiously neutral. We have become religiously hostile. We have replaced religious tolerance with secular coercion under the guise of calling it neutrality. But that's also a discussion for another day. For today, the point that we need for people to remember is that not all facts, not all lines of evidence are of equal value in arriving at valid conclusions. So when we come to facts that apply to our faith, we need to become aware of and even master certain facts that are in direct conflict with the substructure for secularism that exists in our culture. And that subculture is now the theory of evolution. Without evolution, the culture has no credible alternative to God as the Creator. The first two facts we've covered in our 10-fact series are dispositive in demonstrating that the conventional view has inescapable, fatal flaws. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration for our Creator. He genuinely wants to have a personal relationship with each of us so that for all eternity we can enjoy fellowship with Him and proclaim His unmatched glory. A prayer of praise for the Creator. Mighty and everlasting Father, you are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see 
fingers to touch, ears to hear, and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent creative power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, they could perceive the depth, but not measure the distance. Through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom this magnificence? Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son, who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up. So we pray and give thanks in his name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.